0: Welcome to Bookable Space. Today we're joined by A.A. Abbott, who will be reading to us from Lies at Her Door. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank
1: you, Yvonne. It's an absolute pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. I've been looking forward to it. So we'll just dive right in. So can you please tell us what inspired Lies at Her Door?
1: Well, Lies at Her Door is a psychological thriller set in Bristol, where I live, and what inspired it was an event that took place during lockdown when a sinkhole opened up quite close to where I live. And there was no skeleton in the sinkhole, but I kind of thought to myself, well, what, what if there had been one? And really, a sinkhole is not that unusual locally because it's an old city and it's absolutely riddled with holes everywhere. It's like Swiss cheese. You think the ground you walk on is solid, but it absolutely isn't, could collapse at any minute. I never
0: knew about that, about Bristol. I can tell you it's not in any brochure that I've I've ever read that was like, welcome to Bristol, you know, (laughs) where you cannot trust the ground beneath your feet. (laughs) So thank you for the warning. Could we have our first reading, please?
1: Of course. Is it okay if I say a little bit about the reading before I begin? Yes, please. Okay. Well, the, the action in the book begins with a carol concert taking place on Christmas Eve in quite a swanky area of Bristol in in a nice posh Georgian Crescent where the residents all come together to sing Christmas carols in the garden. And among them are a young woman called Lucy. Uh, She's a rather downtrodden young woman who's the main carer for her disabled mother, Jennifer, who's in a wheelchair. And they come to the concert together with Lucy's father, Sebastian, an academic. And when you listen to this extract, you'll get an idea of the kind of relationships that Lucy and her parents have with each other. You'll also meet lots of other characters, but obviously it's a carol concert and there are lots of people there. Just, Just focus mainly on Lucy. And okay, so they've begun to sing. They sang Silent Night, Away in a Manger, and others so familiar that Lucy knew the words by heart. At last, Margaret announced the pièce de résistance, the 12 days of Christmas. Let's practice the actions before we begin, she said. What did my true love give to me on the first day of Christmas? There were whisperings between parents and children. A partridge in a pear tree, a small girl shouted. That's right, Evie. So when we sing about the partridge, I want you all to point to the old oak over there pretend it's a pear tree okay now who knows what happened on the second day finally margaret finished briefing the audience with appropriate words and actions dog children and adults embarked on the song with gusto lucy felt quite exhausted by the time they reached 10 lords a leaping a token hop would have to suffice she watched sebastian and his fellow residents bounce up and down that's worked off their mince pies, Sebastian panted. Oh dear, what's going on? A hum needled its way into Lucy's consciousness, increasing in volume to a rumble. Margaret and the children around her wobbled as they mined nine drummers drumming. Margaret stopped singing. Evie, move! She shoved the child towards Sebastian. Sasha barked, almost tripping Margaret, as she grabbed the hands of two more infants and pulled them with her. The flagstones trembled beneath Lucy's feet. A roar filled her ears, reaching its crescendo in a booming crash. She spluttered as a cloud of dust enveloped the garden. For a few seconds, it was all she could see. When her vision cleared, the garden was perfectly still, apart from fairy lights flickering in four tall trees. She blinked. Shouldn't there be five? In the gloom, she made out a huge dark shape lying on the ground. Lucy gasped. It was the sycamore which had stood in the corner near number 13. If the tree had toppled in the opposite direction, it would have smashed into her house. Around her, Jennifer, Sebastian and the rest of the throng were frozen like dun-coloured statues. She sneezed and the illusion shattered. Children began to sob and wail. The dog howled with them before deciding to whine at Margaret's feet instead. Sebastian brushed the film of dust off his face. Tenderly, he did the same for his wife. There's no need to worry, Jen. It's probably just a minor tremor. We'll go back inside and get you cleaned up. He sounded confident, but Lucy supposed he was putting on a brave face. She shivered. Margaret yelled above the din. Keep away from that tree. The ground is unstable. Parents, count your children, please. Ted raised an eyebrow. Retired, is she? She's got you all under control, he added. Thank goodness. We should still call the emergency services, though. Ah, Brian's on the case. Brian, phone in hand pointed its flashlight to the base of the fallen tree. A yawning black void occupied the corner of the garden, as if a giant had nibbled an edge of the tangerine segment. It's a sinkhole, Luke, Brian said. No wonder the tree came down. The small girl, Evie, shrieked. There's a skeleton! The other children began to scream. Don't be silly, Evie, Lucy said. Of course there isn't. Then her gaze flipped from Sebastian's horrified face to the deep hole and the skull whose sightless eyes stared back at her. She realised she was screaming too. It's actually a collapsed cellar. There there are a lot of cellars, tunnels uh, and, as I say, all kinds of cavities underneath the older parts of Bristol. They do... Sometimes open up with, in this case, devastating consequences.
0: Wow. And it's like the last thing you would expect. Although, yeah, it's like the last thing you would expect to see if, when, you're, when you're looking down. Oh, my goodness. So, in your bio, you mentioned some of the research that goes into writing it, and you thanked and mentioned your beta readers and some of their specialties. And so, it made me curious about what sort of research you do and what's something that you might have found out that interested you but that just did not make it into the book?
1: That's a really interesting question. Police procedure is something that I struggle with because I haven't worked in the police force. So I end up having to consult serving and ex-policemen and women a lot. And I have to say that most of the research I did, did make it into the book. And I found out loads and loads of interesting things about the way the police worked. Like, For example, you cannot get instant results for DNA tests and all kinds of other forensic tests. Some things you can do quite quickly. I was lucky enough to be introduced to a forensic anthropologist, and he's somebody who could tell you a lot about old bones. And he basically explained that you can tell quite quickly whether bones are human, that you can tell quite quickly even from photograph whether they're human and sometimes whether it's male or female adult or child uh, sometimes even you can get a pretty quick clue as to whether a murder has taken place because if somebody had used a knife it it may well have nicked bones and you'll see little nicks and little chips and you can tell from that sometimes a, a lot about how a person died but he did explain that many, many tests take a while to do and therefore a police investigation may not proceed as quickly as the police would like. And my police contacts also explained that in the UK, those kind of forensic services are outsourced, so you need a budget for it. And luckily in the book, the police force do have a budget because there's a policeman actually at the Carroll concert, quite a senior guy, And he takes a personal interest in the investigation and ensures that a budget is available to fast track things like forensic tests and DNA testing, which is how they eventually find out that a wannabe rock star has been murdered quite foully when everybody thought that he'd disappeared in France because he wanted to get his head together.
0: Oh, poor thing never made it. But I think it's so fascinating, all that around the budget and what it makes kind of possible or, or, I mean, you know, if you were an opportunistic uh, murderer, then you know what time of year <laughs> is a really good time to, I don't want to say practice, but to, to commit a murder. But um, so could we have another reading, please?
1: Of course. So this time I'm, I'm going to read, not from Lucy's point of view, but from the point of view of the policeman, Neil, who's involved in the investigation. Even though it's Christmas, the police have called in the forensic specialists. They know that the bones are not ancient history and that they've got a murder inquiry on their hands. And Neil is a detective constable. He's very junior and new in his role, but he's ambitious and he wants to make a name for himself. He does, however, get New Year's Day off and he goes to visit his mother and she's got some interesting news for him about the place where the skeleton was found. So. I will just read a short piece about that. He followed her to the kitchen, watching her start the Nespresso machine and place mince pies in the microwave. She smiled, her gaze both fond and bursting with anticipation. Now you can tell me all your news. Working hard? The microwave pinged, an aroma of brandied fruit wafting through the air as she took out the warmed pies. She cut the tops open, "'and slipped a spoonful of cream in each. "'Here, you were saying?' "'Crime never stops, even in Bristol. "'Even in Jackson Crescent. "'I heard about the skeleton. "'Is it one of your cases?' "'I can't comment.' "'He bit into his pie, "'nearly burning his tongue on the filling. "'It tasted good, though. "'Careful, have a drink of water.' "'She ran the tap and handed him a glass. "'About Jackson Crescent.' I suppose you remembered it from when you were small. I don't think so. Still, he'd had that strange feeling of familiarity. When did I go there as a child? I took you with me to a conference at Bristol University. You were four years old. I ran an online bookshop at the time, you know, selling academic texts. My child mind and let me down on the day. Anyway, that's how we ended up in Jackson Crescent. I bought some books from Jennifer Freeman. Hang on. Did you say Jennifer Freeman? Neil knew that with those words he told her he was on the case. Is she still there? You know I can't. Comment? His mother finished dryly. I can, however. She seemed perfect too perfect. Actually, she was a typical saleswoman. That's all. Jennifer was very friendly at the conference. Then she took me to her lovely big house for a cup of tea. She had a teenage daughter called Lucy, and it was agreed that Lucy would babysit you. Then I could go to the conference dinner. That didn't sound unreasonable. Although Neil couldn't picture Jennifer as a go-getting salesperson, despite her framed awards. He couldn't visualize shifty, nervous Lucy as a babysitter either. Maybe his mother was going to tell him that. What was the girl like? The warmth had left her eyes. Her tone was hard. She replied, Lucy gave you drugs.
0: Whoa. (laughs) Did not see that coming. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. So the book is set in Bristol. And you live in Bristol. And so, what makes Bristol the perfect place for a murder?
1: No one really expects a murder in Bristol. It, it, it is a, a very peaceful city, and murders happen very rarely. Uh, in fact, there, there was one round the corner from where I live, but it was something like 12 years ago. And it's the last time I remember a murder happening in my immediate area. And at, at the time, it, it was quite big news for Bristol. And I was at that time working in London. And I went back to work in London after this murder had taken place and been discovered. And, and I was all excited about the fact that there had been a murder in Bristol. And my colleagues were like, whatever, murders happen in London all the time.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm trying to think of you like comparing it, there were them comparing it and like this having this kind of murder off, like who has the most murder than, you know, in your place. And of course, that's not what you want at all. But oh my goodness. So can we have our last reading, please?
1: Okay, so I'm going to read about Neil again. And now the skeleton has been identified finally from DNA tests as belonging to a man called Jason Jardine, an up and coming musician who was thought to have Either vanished from sight or committed suicide in France. Nobody's sure, but nobody realised at the time that he had died in Bristol. And Neil now suspects Lucy of involvement in the murder. But without any proof, the police are following up by interviewing a number of potential witnesses. And Neil has been sent to see Jason's bandmate, Daniel Freeman, who happens to be Lucy's brother. Daniel Freeman is now very rich, he lives in a mansion near London. And Neil and his female colleague, Sherry, another detective, are visiting Daniel there. And here we're getting to the end of their interview. And Daniel, again, has some very interesting information for the police. The fire crackled and popped. Wood smoke scented air heavy with the weight of unspoken words. Neil said nothing. He knew instinctively that Sherry would do the same. Ab had drummed it into them. Let others fill an awkward silence and you never know what you might hear. Eventually, Dan spoke. I would have trusted Jason with my life, but I can't vouch for Lucy. She's always been away with the fairies. Can you give me an example? Neil asked. When she was a kid, all her pets died within days. She's so self-centred and irresponsible, she couldn't even look after a goldfish. I'm not saying she was crazy enough to lure Jason to Bristol and keep him captive in a dungeon, but, well, if she did, it's no wonder he didn't survive. We'll talk to her, Neil said. Dan winced. I hate to think this, but she'd be my prime suspect. What a mess. My best friend dead and my sister. He stood up, clearly hoping they would leave. Please call me any time if further questions occur to you, or even if you'd like to shoot the breeze. Keep me informed too. I genuinely want to help. He showed them out. Perhaps the surly minder was taking a tea break. As Neil negotiated out of London's traffic jams, Sherry seemed lost in thought. What do you reckon? Neil asked. Good leads. He wore a makeup. Neil snorted. Really? No wonder his appearance had hardly changed since that ancient video. But what's that got to do with anything? Dan Freeman is a performer and I think a performance is what we got. I'm going to ask our Dorset friends if they can get an example of Jason's signature from his dad and I'll tell Ab to be careful. Dan is a seasoned traveller and he's loaded. He could melt into thin air as fast as you can say passport. Perhaps, brought up to believe Dan Freeman was a god, she was disappointed to find him less than perfect. Neil couldn't be bothered to ask, nor argue that Dan was a singer, not an actor. He couldn't have been more helpful. Now we know the cellar can be reached from number 13, and Lucy lied to us about it. At last, they could give Ab some good news. They had another witness in the form of the bandmate in Bristol and two suspects, both female. The Sarah Stokesley angle could be interesting. Neil's money, however, was still on Lucy Freeman, a proven liar, pet killer and drug user. He was lucky to have survived in her care as a four-year-old.
0: Gosh, you know what? I am so glad I do not have a brother like Dan
1: because (laughs) what?
0: It was so fascinating hearing you read and like, getting to know the characters and really wetting our appetite. Thank you so much. My final—I'm not calling it a question because I'm saying I can only ask three questions during the podcast. So the final, not a question, is: Where can we buy Lies at Her Door?
1: Lies at Her Door can be bought on Amazon in a variety of formats. It can also be ordered from bookshops. But if you go to Amazon, you can buy the ebook. Or if you've got a Kindle Unlimited subscription, you can read the ebook for free. And it's available in a variety of print formats as well, because I like to offer readers a choice. So it's in hardback, standard paperback. There's a large print paperback, similar to the ones you might see in the library. And then there's a super easy to read dyslexia friendly paperback as well.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today, for being a guest and for reading and sharing your insights. I really appreciated it.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to meet you. Anytime.